Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 4, with Todd Radom. Episode four of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, broadcasting out of Lexington, Kentucky. Once again, I want to express a sincere thank you to everybody that has supported the show through retweets, likes of the Facebook page, follows on Twitter, um, also the listens on SoundCloud or iTunes. If you, if you do enjoy the show, please uh, take a moment to rate it in iTunes or leave a review there. You can get there, makersofsport.com slash iTunes. Also, while you're at it, um, jump over to the new website, makersofsport.com. You can listen to these shows directly at the website. And then also there's a comment section if you happen to want to comment um, directly on an episode or start a discussion there. Today, I'm extremely excited to have a guest that many consider the expert of sports graphic design, specifically the aesthetics of baseball uniforms and branding. He has a distinct style, unlike any other, that he has been honing since his days at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, where he received his Bachelor of Fine Arts in Graphic Design in 1986, and he also serves on the Board of Directors for the Alumni Society. His work includes official logos for the Super Bowl and the NBA All-Star Game, as well as numerous graphic identities for MLB franchises. His two decades of work with the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball have resulted in some of the most familiar icons of our popular culture. He he regularly appears in the media and most recently was on the Baseball Tonight podcast with Buster Olney, along with publications such as the New York Times, Fast Company, ESPN Magazine, and the design publications, How, Print, and Communication Arts. A big welcome to Todd Radom of Todd Radom Design. Todd, man, how are you doing today? Very good, Adam. Thank you for that kind introduction. I'm very happy to be here with you. I'm very appreciative of you uh, taking some time to come on Makers of Sport. Can you, um, I touched a little bit on your background from the intro, but um, can you give us a little bit more uh, about your, your history working, um, how you got into design, and then also specifically how you got into designing for sports? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it all starts with the fact that, that I am a fourth generation working artist. So I come from a family of people involved in commercial illustration, design, advertising, and, uh, you know, my, my aesthetic sensibilities and my interest in branding specifically and in sports branding super specifically really comes from, it all starts over there. So, uh, you know, I've, I've been a, an ardent observer of the aesthetics of sports for as long as I can remember, I'm one of these kids. You were probably like this too, that, you know, doodling logos from a very, very early age. Um, so, you know, observing this stuff, uh, especially at a time when it was, you know, way, way, way pre-internet to say the least, um, uniform changes that happened, uh, at that point in time, I was always looking out for for, um, but they weren't publicized in advance. So at any rate, um, you know, I, I've been interested in this for uh, many, many years. Um, 
got into, uh, you know, I, I just to to kind of move it forward, I was not necessarily predestined to have a career in commercial art or design, but it sure seems that way in retrospect. Um, and as far as the, you know, the sports part about, about it goes, something that I sort of fell into um, early on in my career. So I feel like your work successfully blurs the line between um, like a historic feel and, but yet also looks modern. Are you a big history fan and how much does history play into your work? I'm a huge fan of history of all kinds. And, um, you know, kind of like the the longer I'm in this business, the more I appreciate the fact that um, the identity of, of sports franchises, of schools, uh, it, it's so important to people. And, um, you know, as a result, the the part of what I do really starts with research and looking into the DNA of a, of a, of a specific location and, you know, what what their visual history has been. Uh, and if you're going to move things forward, you really, really need to know where things have been. So I enjoy that part of it immensely and kind of, uh, you know, as a hobby, I, I've researched and blogged about the visual history of sports as well. Do you feel like in order to be a good designer or um, should you be attuned to history, whether, whether that's the sports industry or, or any, any other design industry? Yeah, I I definitely think so. I think that uh, you know, we as creative people can sometimes get hung up on trends and on future forecasting. Well, you know, if if we're looking toward the future, I think it's equally instructive to look back at the past. And if you're uh, if you're tasked with evolving a corporate logo of any kind, sports or otherwise, you know, it's usually for a reason, right? right. It's not just happening out of the blue. And um, you're going to get a a uh, a more um, you know just a, just a better result if you've dug in and and done some research into what's been there before in order to see where you want to take it. So so speaking of that, you're talking about research. Can you give us a little bit of insight into? You don't have to go too in depth or to give up anything proprietary, but just some insight into your creative process. Uh, what does a typical Todd Radom design uh, identity project look like? Well, it's a good question, and I think it depends upon the the specific kind of project. Uh, as you know, Adam, uh, especially when it comes to sports design, you have team identities, you have uh, commemorative and anniversary logos of which I do quite a number. Right. Right. And then you have event logos and it depends on where all of this is marketed. But the first part of the project is always, um, as you stated, starts with research, starts with some foundation exercise in finding out what the dynamics of of a particular fan base might be all about. Um, compiling this kind of visual audit before diving into the visual part of things from a creative standpoint. Um, So, you know, I'll start with that, uh, present that, then dive into a series of sketches very, very tightly. I am old enough to have began my career drawing things conventionally using photostat cameras and hand lettering, French curves and all that fun stuff. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I, I'm a copious note taker and a doodler to some extent, but I like to dive right into Adobe Illustrator at that point and just start banging stuff out, creating custom letter forms, seeing where this takes me, taking it too far more often than not, and then pulling it back in. And then, uh, and then of course, after these, these, as, as all of us designers know, revisions, 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 you can't right. say that word just right. once, right? You need to echo it multiple times. And there is a, a uh, you know, a sausage making process to some degree um, that happens. But, uh, but at any rate, that foundation exercise, to me, you can't embark upon the creative part without that research part. It's, it's critically important. Yeah, I agree. So um, you have a, an obviously a hand-drawn aesthetic to your work and, and you know, this, this digital age, um, I was just curious if you feel like that the, the whole hand-drawn um, aesthetic is, is something that's important to the timelessness of sports identities. It seems like that the creative industry is starting to um, not just in design, but really everywhere in small business entrepreneurship, starting to kind of go back to this localized, handmade, ma and pop feel. Uh, do you think this is something that's going to make its way back into the more mainstream of sports identity work? Um, you know, it has to some degree, but sports is a different animal, uh, as we know, because of the fact that it is uh, branded. It's marketed. It is brought out into the world in so many different forms. Um, a typical corporate logo or some beautiful piece of design generally is not, you know, projected to the size of a of a small building. In many instances, uh, it's it's not scrutinized for broadcast to the extent to the extent that design for sports is. The criteria are different, and of course, you know, we are we are mass marketed. Um, in, in ways that, that, you know, one-off projects, you, you just, there, there's no, no correlation to some degree, but, but I do think that, that, um, there is this, this, uh, getting back to basics kind of movement and devolving, if you will, that's gone. Uh, it's, it's been happening in sports for, I, I mean, eight to 10 years already. Things are getting simpler. We had this, what I refer to as a, a spasm of detail and an, an abundance of colors and shadows and all of this stuff. And this was uh, a direct reaction to technology in the early 90s. If you look at, for the most part, I don't think across the boards, but, but a lot of professional sports design here in the United States from a certain era, it already looks dated. You know, and it's been 20 years. So at any rate, to answer your question, we've we've been stepping back for a while. I suspect that uh, it's a trend that's going to continue. I don't know that we're going to get into the really super handcrafted stuff that seems to be popping up all all over the place these days. But uh, that that's that's a trend. And, and uh, you know, it's very noticeable to me. Yeah, so I mean, I think that it's it's probably going to at least start to moving into the more simplified look. You were mentioning the the identities of the '90s, and I mean, it's totally synonymous with the software and what you could do with it at that time period, and that you just people tried to do everything, put everything into an identity. And and I know that you mentioned you listened to the Joe Bosack episode, and 
and this sort of uh, graphic, simplified, iconic look um, seems to be something that's that's starting to make its way back. And and in my opinion, I think those end up being the most timeless of identities. If we think about uh, the New York Yankees and why, I mean, it's you know, it's iconic. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's always this, this delicate balance between uh, wanting to be simple and iconic and the need to create something that is proprietary and uh, ownable and extendable. And again, because of the fact that this stuff is attached to so many impressions and uh, needs to stand out in a crowded marketplace, it's, it's, uh, it's tough. Um, I have on more than one occasion, received a request from a client saying, you know what? I want something as simple as the Nike swoosh. And my response to that always is, well, if you've got the ad budget that Nike has on an annual basis, <laughs> yeah. I'd take that and run with it. But, you know, uh, in many instances, everything's been done to some degree. How right. do you make it your own? How do you build something that is uh, timeless to uh, whatever extent timeless can be, not be overly trendy and uh, build something to, to last, a good foundation for your visual program. That's what it's all about. And all of this stuff kind of comes out in the wash. And, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's I think more than anything, to sum this part of it up, if I am tasked with creating something right now, I don't want to create something that five years from now somebody's going to say, well, this looks like 2014, whatever that's going to be. And uh, it's important to keep that in mind at all times. Yeah, I think maybe the 90s, um, I, I refer to them a lot, but it was kind of an interesting time in graphic design because it's the software tended to really drive what it was also new, right? So it was like the software tended to really drive what designers were doing. And so it was like, oh, here's this new thing you can do in Illustrator or, um, you know, maybe some filter or whatever. So people started to experiment with that stuff. But I think that we've kind of come full circle and to realize that that kind of work that was being created then was was relying too much on the software. Yeah. And I think part of it, um, part of the reason that that we've kind of come back to basins, basics, aside from the fact that trends come and go, but, you know, good core design that sells. And this is a very aggressive part of part of the industry here. You know, that that's that's really timeless. But part of it was the fact that that I think you had a number of uh, licensees, people who work with the art and produce stuff that's based on the art that couldn't produce things cleanly. Gradations, which I always, you know, gradations are awesome for certain things, but you can embroider a gradation. We might be able to do it better than we did 15 or 20 years ago, but uh, I want to build a bulletproof series of visual assets that are going to look hopefully seamlessly similar from print to web to broadcast that can be, as I always say, stamped into metal, painted on the field of play, um, really have great continuity and and visual integrity, and um, you know, a lot of a lot of the uh, the 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 sizzle and visual effects and outlines required a stepping back for other purposes, which tended to dilute uh, the 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 kind of core goodness of a brand. Yeah. You know, it's I think that uh, you you hit it right there with with, uh, you know, sports being such a different animal. The identity work has to be reproduced on so many different mediums. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's job one, and it makes it different from, um, you know, from any other kind of design. It's interesting, uh, you know, sports is just the vast, vast, vast majority of what I do, but I do a certain amount of corporate stuff and charitable stuff, and I inevitably will say to people, listen, you know, I've designed a Super Bowl logo. This is the worst case scenario in terms of how your work is deployed into the larger world. The level of scrutiny attached to something like that is different from that of uh, any other consumer brand. I, I mean, truly, with with very, very few exceptions. So your, your strategic thinking in terms of how to create this thing, aside from aesthetics, becomes uh, outsized and just hugely, hugely important. Do you find that working on some of those projects that maybe aren't necessarily, um, directly related to sports, um, help you when you take on sports projects? Is it a a nice breather, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, I've been doing the sports stuff for a long, long time and I enjoy it. And it's, you know, something I'm very passionate about as much now as I ever was. But uh, every once in a while, it's it's kind of nice to have a little uh, palate cleanser. Um, you know, you might you you can go out to a restaurant for a great meal. But every once in a while, you need uh, a little different meal to uh, to really bring you back to what you like about what you like. So uh, it, it's healthy. It's kind of fun, um, you know, and, and it's good to, to have different kinds of stuff in the mix because I feel like it it makes me a, a better designer of sports, even though I've been doing the sports stuff for as long as I have. So when uh, if a person follows you on Twitter or or um, happens to read your blog, They'll, they'll notice that you are an expert in baseball aesthetics. Can you touch on the importance of visual culture in baseball? And why does it seem so much more prominent, it feels like, in baseball than other sports? It's uh, good. I, I, great, great question. You know, each sport, of course, is very different. But baseball is unique in the sense that the, the aesthetic traditions of baseball are kind of firmly rooted in the 19th century. Right. Even if you're a, uh, a Tampa, a Tampa Bay Rays fan or a Blue Jays fan, you know, these are modern franchises, which it, late in the 20th century, the look of baseball and what makes baseball fans uh, so um, you know, sort of familiar with the sport, look at the uniform. I mean, it, it's, it's really, as I said, it's rooted in a certain timelessness from way, way back when. Baseball has swung way out there and, and gotten modern at times. But, uh, you know, the, the looks of the 70s and early 80s kind of came right back, boomerang right back to 1879 in certain respects. I also think that, um, you know, baseball is is a marathon of a season. It's the background of summer. Even if you're a casual fan, just the fact that there are 162 regular season games, I mean, that gives you a tremendous amount of visual impressions if you think about it relative to any other sport. Football is king in America. There's no question about it. But, you know, the number of regular season games is rather limited, um, even though it stretches out like it does. And lastly, I'd say that, you know, baseball, more than any other sport, you've got these, you know, long time stalwart franchises with very established looks. You look at the Chicago Cubs of 2014 and you can draw a line straight back to 
that of a hundred years ago in terms of how they look. The same would apply to the New York Yankees. You know, the aesthetics of, of the Red Sox are very rooted in these traditions as well. The Cardinals' aesthetic traditions are legendary in how these birds on their uniform um, have evolved in this this linear fashion since they first appeared on there in the early 1920s. Um, other sports really, when you think about it, are not like that. Even the most time-honored NFL franchises, um, they have visual identities that really date to the advent of the TV age from the late 1950s and early 60s. Right. I, I think that, you you know, you could you would say that uh, maybe the Green Bay Packers are the New York Yankees of the NFL. Well, the Green Bay Packers, G has only graced their helmets for a little more than a half a century. So uh, the sensibilities are different. There are uh, so many stories to be told about you know, this this uh, long, long line of really interesting stuff having to do with the aesthetics of, I think, uh, make for, for uh, a very rich series of stories that I like to dig into. Yeah, you know, even at the college level, it appears that um, you, you'll have a, an athletic identity for for the whole entire athletic program, but then it's always it seems that the baseball team even had go, goes a step further and has its own letter mark or something on the on their um, uniforms and um, helmets. So so I always always found that to be interesting. Um, what you you post a lot of visual inspiration and and historic graphic design work um, from baseball and, and then also other sports. Do you have like an archive of this work somewhere, like maybe even in your own studio or house? Where where, where are you finding this stuff at? Yeah, well, like you know, I've been collecting this stuff for I mean, literally since I was eight nine years old. I've got. Closets full of game programs, um, you know, I, stuff from from back then, and also stuff that I've picked up along the way. And then I have a digital archives. I'm a I'm a compulsive saver and uh, archivist of of the visuals of sports. And so if I see something interesting, I'll put it put it away, uh, file it away uh, in a place that I'm going to be able to find it, and try to kind of you know, spring it forth at a, at a relevant moment in time. Um, you know, the New York Rangers and, and Los Angeles Kings are close to being in the, in the NHL finals. Well, just for my own purposes, I think it's really interesting to look back at the visual history of these, these two actually very different franchises. Are there visual commonalities that exist between the two? What, what would they have looked like uh, if they had, you know, if they had played at a certain point or when they did play in, 1967, something like that. Um, and I think that it, it gives me good insight into, again, the, the designing of what I actually do. And uh, again, knowing that, that the, the uh, you know, there, there's, there's always this good foundation exercise that I keep coming back to, to build upon, um, knowing the fan base, knowing what makes a particular uh, city or region really tick as it relates to how they care about their teams. You um you brought up game programs that um that's something that I've actually been giving a lot of personal thought to recently and and we're we're starting to see I guess almost the demise of game programs with this digital culture. That's the first um, gig that I had out of school. I've mentioned before I actually designed game programs for a lot of college athletic programs and you know I remember growing up and it was like uh, when I was when I would go to any kind of sporting event with my dad it was always like we're get we have to get a game program because that's the 
souvenir. Like that is how we know that we attended that event. Cause maybe, you know, obviously at that time we didn't have the cell phones we're taking photographs and video and everything like that. So do you have anything uh, to, to add to that? Why do you think that these, these things um, are disappearing? Well, I mean, I think you hit it. Uh, it speaks to digital culture. It also speaks to, you know, sort of like this this fragmenting of of how we get information and and uh, you know this the the uh, fleeting nature of memories and all this kind of stuff. But I would I would add to it the fact that there's another critical piece of sports visual culture that's that's disappearing even more rapidly to me than game programs, and that's tickets. Uh, electronic ticketing yeah. and printed home tickets have rendered these things, uh, you know, from the past kind of, you know, useless and moot to some degree. And listen, I'm like everybody else. I carry around a phone. It's pretty awesome to flash a barcode and boom, you're in. But uh, it seems a little bit hollow. And if you look at there are some beautiful, beautiful designs from all sports with real illustration, hand lettering, and you know, they're fleeting little moments in time. And I've always been a uh, a maniacal saver of ticket stubs. And these days when I, I file away a, uh, you know, a piece of uh, a stub hub barcode piece of paper that I printed out on my printer next to me over here, it's just not the same. And, uh, memories are, you know, memories are, are currency. I always say, but, um, but but the way that we we accumulate these memories and um, and and hang on to them, yeah, that kind of stuff is different. And you know, you could say it's kind of a shame, and it definitely is. But maybe we're gaining something different in this way. I I have no idea. I'm trying to be an optimist. Yeah, it's it's um it's interesting. All of the things that we seem to have taken for granted. Um, you know, just for the, for the sake of convenience. I mean, now everything is like you were saying, I mean, it's check in on a mobile phone and, and do things like that. Even to the, to, to the point where fans, uh, the experience of watching, you know, a 60 inch HD TV, people are starting to prefer that over sitting in the actual stadium. So, yeah. So it's definitely an interesting turn of events. Yeah, you talk about design and and design for sports extends beyond uh, identity projects and, you know, this ephemeral stuff like tickets and programs. But uh, it's just it fascinates me in reading about how NFL stadiums are starting to get retrofitted. um, And then the next generation of NFL stadiums really revolve around this kind of uh, experience that that um, that that takes into account the fact that, listen, you you're at home with your big TV. An NFL game looks far, far better there than it does in person, right? The the experience event is a whole different thing, but uh, the way the way that these facilities are being designed is just totally different than it would have been five, ten years ago. And you can only imagine what it might be a decade hence, right? Right, right. I guess unless you're in Dallas where you're watching the massive <laughs> HD. <laughs> I, I mean, and that thing is just unbelievable. I've had the uh, you know pleasure of being there for the uh, 2010 All the NBA All Star Game. So just you know, again, football is one thing. You could see these guys move back and forth over here, but watching a basketball game there with that thing, it was an incredible, uh, incredibly interesting thing and a, and a distraction to some degree. But anyway. 
I, um, I'd like to go a little bit deeper in this visual culture of sports. Uh, I know that, you know, that's, that's one of your primary areas that you do a lot of research in. And also I'm just curious, do you, do you feel that sports help to shape mainstream, mainstream culture or vice versa? Because, you know, at doing a little research on the, um, Yankees logo, I saw that it was actually inspired by a Tiffany and company designed to a fallen New York city police officer. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I think uh, you you can't talk about American popular culture and what we export to the world, especially these days, um, without touching on sports to some degree. Um, 20 years ago, people had a very negative connection between the visual culture of sports and culture at large because there was a lot of discussion about how uh, gangs had adopted colors and uh you know, co-opted logos from uh, American sports teams. So, yeah, I, I think that there is definitely some influence there. Again, we live in such a uh, fractured world, again, in, in terms of how people get their information and uh, what, what you know, what consumer brands they're affiliated with. Uh, I don't know how you can correlate exactly how, uh, how sports affects everything else, but it does. I mean, and this is a, a big, big piece of, of uh, I think it's critical to say it again, what we export to the larger world. So yeah, it's there. No question. Yeah. I, I think about, um, I think about brands like Mitchell and Ness, the, you know, athletic apparel, uh, brand and, uh, you know, they're, they're, the things that they put out, they tend to sort of pay homage to the history of, of baseball and, and basketball and, and it, and it, it starts to shape mainstream fashion, it appears, which which I think is interesting. Yeah, and that's been going on for a while. And, I, and I'd also point out the fact that, listen, I'm, I've traveled to a lot of strange places in this world, and I have seen people with, for whatever reason, New York Yankees caps or Philadelphia Phillies caps, who are clearly not Americans, but I, I would submit the fact that the Yankees NY, for instance, represents something, especially post 9-11, in a lot of places in this world that uh, maybe stands for America. It's it's interesting, um, you know, when I, I'll give presentations to design groups and to, you know, just different types of people, and I have a slide in my deck that uh, always gets people to sit up straight. And it's an image which uh, portrays a young guy and he's wearing a New York Yankees, clearly not a, a, a licensed product, New York Yankees cap. And he's holding in his hand this golden pistol. And the deal is, is that he pumped a bullet into the head of uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya a few years back. And, uh, you know, he's wearing a Yankee cap. And I'll, I'll always point out the fact that I'm sure that he has no idea what, you know, Derek Jeter's current uh, hit total is as he gets ready to close out his career. He knows absolutely nothing about the uh, the fact that, you know, the Yankees are, to, you know, having a pretty good season compared to last year, this, that, or the next thing. That NY stands for America. And there aren't a whole lot of franchises that you could say that about. Uh, you know, Dallas Cowboys stars all over the world in just the most bizarre places imaginable. So, uh, you know, America in 2014, we don't make a whole lot of things, unfortunately, in this country anymore that the rest of the world consumes. But the world sure consumes our popular culture and they consume our sports brands um, to an extent that a lot of us just cannot even fathom. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, and I think that if you look at even brands like um, consumer brands that, you know, we buy in in the store like Coca-Cola, the fact that, you know, you have that in that slide in, in one of your decks is, you know, says a lot about how sports brands are just as popular worldwide, maybe even more so than as, as consumer brands. So uh, are there, are there any particular projects that, that you've worked on? I know you've worked on many, many over the years, some that maybe you can talk about and some that you probably can't. Are are there any that stand out that uh, were maybe some of your favorites or, and even if you can't discuss who it was for, maybe what it was an identity project or maybe you, an application of a, of a particular identity? Well, you know, I, I, I can say that I've been doing this for so many years. My first professional sports team that I branded was in 1992. So, I mean, that's a long, long time ago. Um, you take it at the top and the challenge of branding a Super Bowl was an incredible challenge. And, you know, it's, it's, it's again, as somebody who's so into history, um, seeing this, this, this piece of work that I, that I was involved with sort of uh, as part of history, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, humbling and it's always an interesting exercise to look back upon the level of scrutiny involved with a, with a Super Bowl logo, or, you know, I've done all-star game logos for different, uh, sports that really have to do with different cities, professional franchises. One thing that I've, that I did, um, probably about 13, 14 years ago at this point was the logo for the Brooklyn Cyclones, which is a minor league baseball team here in the New York area. And that was a really neat project, not because it was the most prominent thing in the world, but because the fact that I am a native New Yorker, I was born in Manhattan. I went to school for four years in New York City. I've never lived more than 40, 50 miles from the island of Manhattan. And being uh, interested in sports history and in baseball in particular, it was a real treat to be able to be involved with kind of bringing baseball back to Brooklyn for the first time since the Dodgers left. Um, you know, the logo is very nostalgic. It's it's kind of uh, revolves around this um visual uh, culture of Coney Island uh, during its heyday. And that place has come and gone and come again. And the logo is still around. It's kind of stood the test of time. So that was that in particular was was a really uh, fun thing to be involved with. That's cool. So I, um, I listened to your, your episode with, uh, Buster uh, and, and I thought it funny uh-huh. that he referred to <laughs> you as working with the CIA and the things that you can and cannot talk about. <laughs> um, I, uh, I was just curious. So I, I'm, I'm familiar obviously with, uh, non-disclosures and, and, um, you know, that, that just tends to be a part of, of business, um, as, as a lot of us can attest to, but have you found that, um, not being able to showcase certain things that you've worked on has um, affected your ability to to get further projects. I mean, obviously, designers rely so much on our portfolios. Um, and and are I guess since you can't show those things, do you find that there are other ways you can establish yourself as an expert, like say your blog, in ways that you're not necessarily showing work? Yes, absolutely. I mean, listen, if if somebody comes to me with uh, a request for a proposal for a project, you know, I'll share with them what I've what I do uh, privately, you know, but but again, we're in this this world in which everything is out there. Um, 
publicly. And that's sometimes a difficult thing to work around. No question about it. But uh, listen, I've got a lot of years of accrued knowledge that go beyond simply executing um, the stuff that I've done. And a certain amount of it uh, revolves around uh, looking at strategies and knowing markets and things like that. So yeah, I, I can... I could put stuff out there on Twitter, which I enjoy. Um, it's a creative exercise unto itself. I've enjoyed writing on my blog. I need to keep up with a little bit more, you know, what that kind of stuff is all about. So there are multiple ways to go about this, no question. A lot of us that, that follow your work um, obviously know your style. So even probably some of the things that you can't talk about, we know in our heads like, oh, that's definitely Todd had to do that. <laughs> but but um, have you have you found that that actually has been beneficial to you? Come, um, you know, because you, you do have this distinctive style. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think part of it has to do with the fact that I've been doing what I've been doing for so many years that, you know, it's, 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 uh, I'm called upon to play to my strengths. So whatever style I have is, uh, you know, it's known after a certain number of years. Absolutely. Um, I would say that that speaks to, again, longevity to whatever degree and hopefully quality, um, you know, that that what I'm doing now is kind of derived in a somewhat of a straight line from what I was doing 20 years ago. It's evolved to whatever extent it has been. But, um, yeah, it's it definitely has something to do with it. So was it was it deliberate that you were you, you were sort of working to get to a particular style that was maybe ownable or was it something that just subconsciously happened by producing a lot of work? No, I think it's the producing a lot of work, but it's interesting. If I were to show you my portfolio from college or my earliest jobs, um, having graduated college, you'd probably recognize them. I, I, um, it's interesting. Uh, after my years at School of Visual Arts, I was working in the book publishing industry for a few years, and I was called to, upon to do a lot of baseball book covers. And there were a lot of baseball books for whatever reason at that point in time. And again, this is before uh, before Illustrator, before Macs were widely used. So I was doing hand lettering, really highly specialized stuff um, with a real flair and a real passion for the subject matter. And I became known for that. Uh, and I was able to parlay that into ultimately a portfolio that I could that I could bring out into the larger world and, and really target branding jobs with but I guess the point is that, uh, again, if you were to look at some of that stuff, you'd probably recognize it. So it, it, it kind of harkens back to uh, my strengths, passions and uh, abilities, all of that stuff. So you are one of the um, one of the designers that even though you work, do a, a ton of work in the sports niche, you sort of have have really brought that to the whole mainstream in terms of graphic design culture. It seems like a lot of sports design in in just regular design culture tends to be looked down upon. Like it's, Oh, there's, it's, it's all, it's all visual and no, no, uh, no substance or, you know, it's, it's maybe it's not as highly conceptual. How are you able to kind of bridge that gap? Well, I think that this kind of general disdain, if you want to look at it that way, um, uh, towards, toward, toward the visuals of sports, I think that's shifted in the last 10 years or so. Um, and I sort of pin it to the fact that, uh, well, listen, you've got a couple of things going on, but again, from a, from a purely historic standpoint, Pentagram and Michael Beirut did all this work with the New York Jets 
uh, you know, within the past. Right. right. I mean, and that sort of made us smell better to some degree. I think before. Yeah. And the big 10 logo and the big 10 logo. Right. And, and, you know, you also have this phenomenon, which, you know, I'm, I'm constantly up against quite frankly, in that, uh, big, big branding agencies, uh, want to do sports because there's money there certainly, and there's visibility and there's, you know, there's, there's work that can be leveraged into other places and into ongoing relationships. Look, no, no further than the fact that Lander has done, you know, the Super Bowl logo, um, you know, which, which I mean, that's a whole separate discussion. Uh, you had Interbrand working on this stuff. So I think that uh, a down economy for a number of years now, pragmatism and maybe a little bit of a different view has has brought uh, the elite out there around to the fact that sports design is important and uh it's challenging and um you know it's it's not the the typical corporate stuff that you know that that you can employ swiss design onto but uh but it's something people want to do absolutely well that's interesting that you mentioned the economy because i think about um you know when uh, 2008 or whenever the uh you know the economy kind of went went south What's what's the one thing that a lot of people tend to turn to when they're not at their jobs? It's it's they go home and watch sports, or they or they're entertained in some way by watching television or yeah or, or something like that. So it seemed like that that maybe that industry continued to to keep pumping pumping it out there. <laughs> yeah, and I and, and I'll say something else as it relates to the economy. You know, and we've I had this discussion with somebody the other day that somebody who is graduating from college right now has known the realities of of this great recession for, you know, for for uh, a chunk of their lives. But as it relates to sports design, I think that it it uh, spurred on this movement back to retro um, because I have this theory that, listen, you know, look at so many examples of franchises that have really looked to their past uh, when when updating their look. And I think that people in a in difficult times times come back to comfort food. And uh, when we talk about a team like the Baltimore Orioles, for instance, who brought back their smiling bird a few years ago, right? A team like the Toronto Blue Jays in baseball who updated their look, which, you know, hadn't been utilized in quite some time. You're seeing it uh, in, in all sports, lots of stuff in the NBA. Hard times make people yearn for something that they feel comfort with. You know, people people want uh, sometimes vanilla ice cream, mashed potatoes may not be the healthiest thing for them, but uh, but it's what people want. And uh, and I think we've seen this phenomenon over these past seven or eight years. I've uh, I've seen you tweet and also maybe write in an article um, about niches to riches. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. I always enjoy getting um, getting emails, being contacted by uh, younger designers. I'll meet people at design conferences, whatever. Um, and and it's it's great because I, I kind of have two things. Well, number one, I've worked for myself for so many years that I just find it amazing that you know you you have this accrued knowledge that you can talk about, and talking about it is a lot easier than actually doing it. Second, secondly, uh, you know sharing this stuff and kind of paying it forward, it's it's not only the right thing to do, but it's easy to do. So uh, I am a huge proponent 
uh, in the fact that, listen, especially in a, in a world in which technology has flattened out people's abilities, you may be a, a great digital artist, an absolute whiz at illustrator, but you know, if you're not a great designer, um, you may be able to, to hide some of those flaws. So how do you compete in a, in a very competitive world? And let's face it, any kind of you know, being a creative professional, it's one of the most challenging uh, competitive fields that you could possibly get into. It's not for the meek. That's for sure. So how do you, how do you cut through the masses? How do you cut through the clutter? How do you get noticed? It's hard to do. So I am a big, big proponent of the fact that, yes, in niches, there are riches that, that become an expert. Hammer down to, uh, you know, what, what you are passionate about. Um, all of that research stuff, all that foundation stuff that you and I have been discussing, um, get into that. It's not only about executing, but it's about knowing an audience, um, you know, really being a passionate consumer. And that's one of the things, quite honestly, that, that, that I was able to leverage uh, 20 some odd years ago. Uh, talking about the fact that, uh, listen, I am a I am a sports fan. I'm a consumer of these brands. I know who your customers are because I am your customer, and uh, I think it's pretty pretty important um, if you're going to be a designer now more than ever to become a specialist. Do you think it even goes a bit deeper, like with um, with the sports? You know, not just being a sports designer, but um, maybe you're a sports designer that specifically works on baseball branding. That seems to be a common thing. I, I don't know if our, if you're familiar with Dan Simon. He's a fellow Kentuckian, but he does a, a lot of uh, minor league baseball works. And, and so it seems like that you know, even as a sports branding designer, you're either doing a lot of college work, like say Joe Bosack, or you're doing um, like yourself doing a lot of MLB work, or or that type of thing. So does it go even deeper than that? It could. I mean, you know, in the case of somebody like a Dan Simon, who, you know, clearly the, the guy is an expert uh, with regard to the branding of the miners uh, and he has contacts and he's got this, you know, impressive body of work that dates back a couple of decades. Same with Joe. Joe knows the ins and outs of, uh, you know, the world of college branding in a way that I really don't. No, I don't know that you could go into it. Um, you know, I think in, in both of those cases, mine as well, I could point to other cases, things have have uh, evolved into the way that they have, um, you know, but but um, I, I don't I don't know necessarily that you could that you could go into it, say, saying I want to be a baseball designer. You might never get that point of entry. Um, and you know, you, you could be treading water potentially. I would say look at look at the totality of the landscape. Be interested in all of it. Be aware of all of it. Know what the differences are in terms of fan bases, the aesthetic cultures of each of these sports, even internationally now. Um, you know, there, there's something to be said for that. Uh, I think it's fascinating just to go off on a, a slight tangent about how uh, the world of Major League Soccer, which is really not my world, um, you know, you've got you've got this aesthetic and branding sensibility, which looks at the rest of the world and brings it into this American context. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, you know, and the whole niches to riches thing. I don't know if you're familiar with a book um, called Win Without Pitching. But it, it kind of touches on this whole vertical market focus on on one particular 
area and become an expert at it. And, and, you know, if you want to, I'm of the opinion that I live in, basically I live outside of Lexington, Kentucky in small town USA. And, um, you know, I, if you want to work with clients that are outside of your market, then the best way to do that, like you said, is to kind of focus on, on a niche, because if you're just a generalist, then they can hire a generalist in their market. Yeah, no, that's very true. And, you know, I mean, again, I I think these things ebb and flow as well. You touched earlier upon um, the the idea that, you know, doing things outside of the world of sports is a healthy thing. And I I think you would you would agree with that, too. Right. Yeah, yeah, Um, I definitely agree. You know, and and to me, it brings you back to your core. Um, you know, your core passions and your core, what you love. Listen, I know sports designers and I'm sure you do too, who aren't necessarily huge sports fans. I don't know that, that, that is, uh, you know, the most important piece of this puzzle, but in those cases, they are absolute lockdown experts on, uh, you know, on, on looking at fan bases and finding out what makes, what, uh, makes a constituency tick, um, and, and you know what? Ultimately, I always I'll spout off about this to to younger folks, too, that that, uh, you know, it, it makes your day just a really great place to, to you know, your job, a great place to go. Uh, starting out in the morning, if you're if you're attacking something that you're really passionate about, then, uh, you know, it, it's 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 that that really is what it, it's what it's all about. Right. 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 I, I know people who are, I just, you know, I, I know people who are absolutely passionate about, you know, editorial design or, you know, used to be about annual reports, something like that. Not my world, but, you know, they are totally into it. And it's really no different from from what I do. Yeah. So you you worked on a, a Super Bowl logo. Can you talk a little bit about that that project, uh, what it was like to do something that, you know, arguably is is. Uh, one of the most popular events in the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, it was, as I stated earlier, a great challenge, knowing how visible this was, knowing the stakes involved, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it was 10 years ago. The process is different now. We've now, you know, we live in a, a world of standardized Super Bowl logos. And, and uh, again, uh, I, I said it a little bit earlier, that's a whole other discussion. But uh, you've got this, this uh, at that time, of course, there was this desire to, to really have the visual embodiment of this, as they call it, the biggest one day sporting event on the face of the earth. They wanted that to reflect the locality of the specific place where it's played, which in that case was Houston. Uh, There is a gobbledygook attached to Roman numerals. In that case, it was 38. That is a lot of L's, V's and I's, right? X's, all this kind of stuff. Um, and it was very interesting from a structural perspective, knowing that even then there was this desire for simplicity. And in 2003, 2004, there was not a whole lot of simplicity in our landscape. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, again, I just keep coming back to the world word, great challenge, minimal number of colors, knowing that there was a real desire also to, to look at the totality of the visual history. This was presented to me right from the outset. Here are the logos for, you know, each of these games right up until at that time, Super Bowl 38, this needs to fit into the visual culture of this. Um, so it was just an absolutely awesome project. 
So on, on like, say, one of those um, NBA All-Star logos, is there a set of, like a, like a brief with a set of parameters that basically says these particular things have to absolutely have to be included, and then you're kind of up to your own creative will after that? Yeah, I mean, in my world, I will sometimes I will get a brief. And of course, that's always welcome because you want to know the the priorities of your client. I mean, you know what it's being used for. Ultimately, that's kind of a no brainer. And again, there is this this, uh, you know, absolute lockdown, you know, knowledge of the fact that it's going to be used in all of these different contexts and so forth. But sometimes I'll get a brief. Sometimes I won't. Uh, in the case of the NBA, you know, it always used to be that they like things that are horizontal, whereas uh, that's not always the case in other places. And that's a pretty elementary piece of the puzzle, right? Uh, you know, but there are, there are certain certain common threads that I think uh, string throughout all of this. You don't want to use too many colors. You want to know that your colors are going to be bulletproof, that they're going to look great on the web, that you're going to be able to uh, embroider a certain yellow color that, you know, it will look like uh, a, a flat print color, this kind of a thing. I think a certain amount of it is just common sense to to whatever degree experience. But uh, each of each of the sports is different, as we've been saying, and their needs are somewhat somewhat different uh, in certain respects as well. How much of uh, like the city, um, you know, if we think about Phoenix in 2009, like, I mean, I guess it does. Is it? Is it one of those things where it has to be completely obvious that this is taking place in Phoenix with the, you know, obviously it's, you don't have a, a picture of the city of Phoenix in there, but you know, you've really shown the desert and, and that mountain actually looks pretty familiar. Like it's <laughs> like, like the one ones in Phoenix. I, I think it, I think it depends upon the city. And, and I think that, you know, the conversation then moves to a, a, a similar but larger place. You know, if you're designing any kind of a sports logo for a city like New York or Chicago, a big place, it's a different task than that of designing a mark that's going to be used in Seattle or Kansas City. And I think it's about respecting the traditions, the local fan bases, um, you know, event logos are event logos. Uh, which is to say that an all-star game in a city like New York is going to get lost in the larger metropolis, whereas you know, uh, an all-star game in a city like Phoenix, even though it's a big place, it's 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 a big deal there. It's a bigger deal than it might be in Chicago or L.A. If you recall a good ten years ago, the NBA All Star Game was in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, this is, uh, I guess, you know, and and it was hosted by both the Lakers and the Clippers, and really had no specific imagery whatsoever. It was typographically driven, and uh, where I was not involved with that, but you know, it was pretty evident that it was like you have to serve a different. You know, set of masters in in that case. Kind of uh, again, uh, every job is different, every locality is different, and these things do evolve. Absolutely. Can you um, can you give us a little bit of detail um, on? I saw where you posted on your your site recently where you're starting to do these case studies on on logos. Well, uh, you know, I, I just think it's it's. Uh, again, being being interested in history of all kinds brings me back to this stuff. And the first one, which got a little bit of traction on Twitter today, involved the Montreal Expos logo, right? Having grown up when I did, and any of us who remember the Montreal Expos looked at this, this odd, you know, almost foreign-looking mark. What is it? What does it stand for? And 
I started doing a little bit of research and it led me to a whole series of, of uh, additional blog posts. Um, uh, kind of, you know, some of it is about solving mysteries perhaps. And some of it is kind of reinforcing what might be otherwise familiar. Um, and, uh, you know, I want to, I want to keep this thing evolving, uh, and taking it out from something that's fairly straightforward. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, I always say in these things, sports design sort of, you know, it's at the intersection of art, commerce, uh, passion, rooting, all of this stuff all kind of comes together. And people are so proprietary about their, their sports brands that it seemed like a natural thing to do. That's great. I'm, I'm looking forward to more of them. Do you have any last advice uh, that you'd like to give to anyone that might be looking to get into sports branding work or, or just designing in the sports industry in general? Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, bite-sized pieces start, you know, be prepared to start in a certain bottom place, really immerse yourself in knowledge, understand, uh, how these pieces of art are utilized, know how, uh, you know, work with licensees, people who produce apparel or hard goods that this stuff is based upon, uh, observe how logos get cracked apart for broadcast purposes and spun around and look at, you know, how this stuff is used in a stadium setting. Um, look at environmental graphics how a simple logo can be utilized in so many different ways, animated LED boards, all kinds of stuff. Uh, again, Adam, there's that discussion about becoming an expert, becoming passionate, um, maybe becoming you know conversant in the language of business. Uh, it'll get you in there. Your, your talent will push you over the hump with this kind of stuff, but uh, it's always evolving. Stay ahead of trends. Don't be too reliant upon trends. There's so much to talk about this stuff. Like I said, I'm, you know, I think about it every day and, uh, and just be passionate about it. Where can our listeners find out more about you and, and see your work? Well, I am on Twitter at Todd Radom, T-O-D-D-R-A-D-O-M. And also hit me up on my website, which is toddradom.com. Um, you know, always interested to hear from people. And it's such a big world out there. Uh, and and uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome. And you do a little speaking, right? On different cities, ad clubs and AIGAs and things like that. Yeah, I think that's how you do. You and I first became acquainted. I gave a presentation uh, for Louisville. Louisville Graphic Design Association down there a couple of years back. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, again, I, I enjoy speaking about this stuff and, you know, I have uh, a series of presentations that to give. I, I, I always tailor it to to the specific location, not unlike designing a mark for, you know, a, a, a specific team. Right. Right. Um, and. You know, it's very visual and it's always great to get out and meet people and and uh, talk about what I what we've been talking about. Todd, thanks so much for your time, man. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and and giving our listeners some and myself some uh, some great insight. Thank you, Adam. It's been a pleasure. And I'm looking forward to hearing hearing some more of Makers of Sport. It's a great concept and uh, keep it going, man. Thank you. This week in sports creative news, we are um, actually recording this on Tuesday following Memorial Day, the 27th, um, but the MLB wore camo uniforms and hats for Memorial Day. What do you think about that trend, Todd? Well, listen, it is a trend and I'm not big on you know the idea of trends necessarily. I, I think it's somewhat controversial in the sense that, you know, you're equating war with sport. I don't know. I mean, it sort of trivializes the 
sacrifices that were made. I'm not a huge fan necessarily to be totally candid, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure. I, I'm, I'm actually in that same boat. I, yeah. I'm in the same boat. I, I think it tends to be a little disrespectful for, for the sake of maybe sell, selling merchandise, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, uh, uh, more sports news, uh, the buzz pun intended around the internet has been that the Hornets are moving back to Charlotte. I'm actually a bit nostalgic about this. That, uh, sort of takes me back to the NBA of my childhood. Uh, the brand identity was designed by rare design in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and the uniform unveiling is set for June 19th and a new playing for it is floor is to be unveiled June 26th. Our next guest is Steve Vollmer Jr. Steve is a graphic designer working at the NFL headquarters in New York City, where he's been since 2011 working on projects for the NFL Draft, Play 60, Digital Summit, uh, I'm sorry, Digital Media Summit, the Super Bowl, um, and the Rookie Symposium, just to name a few. Uh, big thanks again to Todd Radom. Again, you can follow him, Todd Radom, at Todd Radom, uh, T-O-D-D-R-A-D-O-M, and then also ToddRadom.com. Be sure to follow myself on Twitter, at T. Adam Martin, and then also the show, at Makers of Sport. Um, again, the website is live. Uh, the full-width version, plan to hopefully have a responsive version uh, eventually. Uh, you can submit questions there to myself or guests. And also just say hello. It's that's makersofsport.com. So thanks again to everybody for listening. Again, try to rate the show if you can on iTunes, uh, makersofsport.com slash iTunes. Until next time.